You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same episode 148 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me, as always or usual, is uh, the professor of English at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas, David Grubbs. David, how's it going? Oh my gosh, it's so early in the morning and I've had so little sleep, so I'm just going to preemptively apologize for anything that comes out of my mouth in the next, you know, hour or so. If if our listeners are lucky, they will hear David laugh as Nathan and I heard him laugh m- minutes ago. <laughs> it was excellent. Uh, the Nathan to whom I refer is Nathan Gilmore, who is an associate professor of English at, uh, oh man, Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm lucky I can remember my college's name, much less getting you guys down. How's it going, Nathan? I actually like that. I, I think I'll uh, tell our uh, college president when he introduces himself, you know, on fundraising trips to say, uh, I'm the president of Oh Man, Emmanuel College. <laughs> oh, baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, our uh, our topic today is the first of our fall triptych. We always do a, a three-part series of, of related episodes. And this, uh, this semester, our, our series is going to be Robin Williams movies. Uh, Williams, of course, uh, committed suicide at the beginning of August, uh, which really bummed me out. Um, I, 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 I was saying before we started recording, I, I don't know if I've liked a Robin Williams movie in 10, 15 years, but still the idea that that he would find the world so devoid of hope that he would see no way out other than suicide is uh, profoundly sad to me. So uh, we're going to talk about three profoundly sad Robin Williams movies. That'll cheer everybody up, right? Oh, yeah. And we're starting with Terry Gilliam's 1991 movie, The Fisher King, which which uh, was a was a big, like, critical splash when it came out, and I'm not sure what to what degree it has maintained its popularity. So... Uh, if you haven't seen this movie, we are going to spoil the heck out of it, so you probably want to watch it first. Um, and the place to do that online is this website, Crackle, which is crackle.com. Um, I, I thought you were supposed to have to watch ads with it, but I didn't get any ads. Did you guys get ads when you watched it? Oh, I did when I watched it. Okay, yes. I have an ad blocker on my on my browser, so it apparently did the trick. Oh, I got so many ads. Yeah, so so many ads. So install AdBlocker for Firefox, and you won't get those (laughs) ads. But that is Crackle.com. The Fisher King is available for free there. I think you can also buy it digitally on Amazon for like ten bucks. Or of course, you can get a DVD from places that still give DVDs. Although, David, you didn't have much luck at video stores. Is that right? Yeah, no. But my local video store mostly mostly stocks terrible horror movies so I, I just still can't believe there's still such a thing as a local video store in 2014 but um know, yeah you know we got one the dream of the 90s is alive in mcpherson yeah it's not as cool as the ones in the 90s though not all of the the the, the unfiled vhs tapes just sort of piled randomly on a shelf like a flea market or something this is way too organized I'm no ambiance. Well, I assume The Fisher King is the sort of movie medievalists live for because it lets you guys show off your erudition about an area most people don't know much about or care much about except when there's a movie, right? Um, my knowledge of the myth of The Fisher King pretty much begins and ends with Elliot's The Wasteland. Uh, so, David, why don't you educate me and our listeners about who exactly The Fisher King is and how Gilliam's movie uh, adapts and uses that legend? The Fisher King is, as one could, you know, easily infer from looking at the cover of this 
uh, of this film or the main poster for it. Uh, in the Fisher King logo, you see a little medieval-style cup with light glittering off of it. And then the uh, the tagline for the movie, uh, well, the tagline for the movie mentions the Holy Grail. So the, the Fisher King is a figure in the Arthurian Holy Grail stories. Um, there is no one Holy Grail story. There are there are many that that come to us from the Middle Ages. It was uh, it was a favorite, and so it was uh, sort of endlessly hashed and rehashed and re rehashed. So the Fisher King is uh, is a character for which there's no. Um, no one version, but there is a pretty stable collection of motifs that surround them. Uh, I'll start off with the earliest because that has pretty much all the pieces already in it. It's in Chrétien de Troyes, uh, French writer, lives in the uh, 1100s and writes a uh, chivalric romance called Percival. And Percival is, uh, he's a noble youth, he's the son of a knight, but he is raised in complete ignorance of all things knightly because he's got an overprotective mom. Um, he ends up being a fool figure. Uh, he's, he's basically just a naive country bumpkin. And he spends most of his time trying to undo the effects of his really stupid decisions. Uh, anyway, he discovers knights one day, he wants to become one, his mom lets him leave, and then, you know, takes steps to make sure that nobody will ever think he's cool by giving him stupid clothes and terrible advice. Uh, anyway, he has awesome and stupid adventures, and eventually one day finds himself at a river, and there is a man in a boat in the river, and the man is fishing and he turns out to be the owner of a nearby castle, and he puts up Percival for the night. And this is the Fisher King. Why is he the Fisher King? Because he fishes. Right. Anyway, while at the castle, uh, Percival sees a lot of things that he understands. Uh, during dinner, there's this whole, like a parade. It's like it's like half parade, half Catholic mass. And. Uh, a maiden carries a grail, which is not even described or defined in the story. She carries a grail through the banquet hall, and then someone carries through a spear that drips blood. And Percival, who was told by, uh, who, who, who has been instructed to not ask too many questions, doesn't ask any questions. Anyway, the next day he he wakes to find the castle deserted, and as soon as he leaves the castle, he meets some random woman who immediately berates him for not asking questions the night before, because it turns out that the man who owned the castle, the Fisher King, um, had a horrible wound from which he'd been suffering for years, and if Percival had just asked what the grail was and what it was for, the Fisher King would have been healed. But Percival did not ask any questions, and so the Fisher King remains in his woundedness, and Percival spends the rest of that romance trying to figure out how to make good his stupid error, which he never actually does in Cretien's romance because Cretien did not finish it, <laughs> uh, which is one reason why so many other writers picked up this tale. Uh, they, they basically start with Cretien's premise and then continue it or finish it in their own in their own way or they write more backstory to explain what the grail is or who the fisher king is uh some basic motifs the fisher king he fishes uh also he is wounded the wound is often in the thigh which is kind of a euphemism for the groin um, and we can see this because the woundedness of the fisher king not only results in him being unable to fight and do other kingly things, but also it affects the fertility of his land. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the Fisher King is the king of the wasteland and the wasteland is a wasteland because an infertile land, because the Fisher King himself is, is wounded, is maimed. 
Right, uh, right. And this is one of those places where the the king has two bodies. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, also all of that, you know, James Fraser Golden Bowl stuff in which kingship and fertility go together and yeah. Uh, if you if you really kind of want to see these things connected, um, you can watch. Uh, well, among other things, among other things, you can watch the movie uh, Excalibur, and in the Grail sequence in Excalibur, there's a very clear connection between uh, Arthur's fertility and the Holy Grail because they 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 sort of mash up the Grail quest with uh, Arthur as a cuckold. Um, Arthur as one who is uh, being uh, sexually betrayed by his wife and his best friend. And so, you know, the in, in that movie, those things are put together. So what does that have to do with this movie? Um, frankly, it's a little unclear. Uh, there's a scene in which uh, Robin Williams, who is called Perry in the film, I think a pretty clear reference to Percival, who is the knight who seeks the grail. Um, you know, Perry is lying out in the park naked with, uh, you know, the, the Jeff Bridges character, Jack. And he tells a version of, of the Fisher King story, which has a grail in it and has a wound in it, except instead of, a wound in the thigh that affects the fertility of the land. It's uh, the, the, the grail appears in fire. And so this, this man reaches in to try to grab the grail and the grail disappears, but he is himself burned. And so there's, there's a wound that comes from that, that hubris. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is a fool character uh, who who shows up in the story, who finds the grail, but there's no quest. The fool just sort of walks up and grabs a cup and gives the guy a cup of water, and he seems to have some kind of uh, amazing, miraculous perception because he is a fool, right? He can see things because he's a fool. Well, that's kind of Shakespearean, right? Yeah, but pre- pre- precisely the opposite of the function of the fool character in all the chivalric romances that connect with the grail story. Um, Percival, uh, Percival is a fool and his foolishness does not give him a kind of insight over those who are too sophisticated. Um, it actually puts him at the mercy of pretty much everyone. And it's his foolish mistake that leads to the misery of the Fisher King, the prolonging of the misery, not the ending of the misery. So there, there's some significant differences. And the other question is, who is the Fisher King in this movie? Who is the Grail Knight? Um, and are our two main, I guess, our two main protagonists, because there really are two, two main characters, um, mm-hmm. are our two protagonists a little bit of both? Yeah, and I, I think it's significant, too, that, I mean, although Perry's version of the narrative that he tells in Central Park doesn't involve the question, uh, at the end of the movie, and, and listeners, this is where the spoilers start, so just get ready, uh, at the end of the movie, Perry is healed, he is brought back to health, precisely when, out of his coma, he rises up and asks the question, right, mm-hmm. am, I, am I allowed to miss her now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, it's in that moment that, you know, Jack Lucas... Uh, is aware of him, uh, but doesn't respond to him. But it's after that moment that, you know, the final healing in the movie happens. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also, it's, it's really, really, it, it's a strange choice to me to tell. And, and frankly, there's no precedent. Um, I, I don't know of any precedent in the medieval matter for the Grail story that's in the film. I've mm-hmm. never heard any version of it that's anything like that. But what's what's interesting to me is that in the film, um, one of the the main area of woundedness that both of these men experience, both Perry and Jack, is frankly an inability to love that I think seem that I think is very closely connected to the original story and the way that the the Fisher King's woundedness. Um, impairs fertility. He can't. He can't have an heir. 
mm-hmm. um, his land cannot, you know, cannot produce. The natural course of life is stalled. Um, and in both of the in both of the men in this movie, that that their their woundedness um, leads to that kind of uh, that kind of inability. Mm-hmm. Well, and and for different reasons, right? Jack Jack Lucas, the the shock jock, chooses it. He 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 yeah. has he has chosen hatred or pride or whatever you want to posit as the opposite of love. Whereas Perry, or what, I forget what his actual name is. The, Perry is a name he takes after the traumatic events that make up the background of the movie. Right. Um, right. P- Perry is is pushed into this because the woman whom he loved was taken from him. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe we should. You know, we probably should have started with some sort of plot summary, but uh, the the basic the basic plot is this: uh, Jeff Bridges plays Jack Lucas, who is a radio shock jock. He has a a regular caller who who he torments. Um, he acts like he's the guy's friend, but really he's making fun of him. And and one day the guy calls in and says, uh, you know, I went to this hip club last night, this yuppie club, and Lucas goes off on this long rant about how yuppies are terrible people who don't deserve to live. Well, lo and behold. Uh, this this guy goes to the club and and kills a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, years later, Jack Lucas has hit rock bottom and he he he's about to kill himself and and uh, the Robin Williams character Perry saves his life. As it turns out, Perry's uh, Perry's wife was one of the people who died. So the rest of the movie is Jack trying to figure out what he owes this man whose life he he at least indirectly destroyed uh, and, and so forth. Right, and that—that's only spoiling about the first half hour of the movie. So, <laughs> although I guess Nathan, you already did say the ending. So hopefully our listeners either don't care or have already seen have already seen it. Yeah, we warned you, listeners. We did I mean, warn watch, you. Watch the movie. I, at this point, I mean, really go watch the movie because it's only going to get more spoily. <laughs> well, while we're talking about background stuff, as I rewatched the movie, it struck me as a period piece. It's not just a portrait of a shock jock as a viable cultural commentator, which I, I don't think they really are anymore. Even even Howard Stern lost Sirius XM, you know, millions of dollars. But it's also a portrait of a pre-Giuliani New York City in which homeless people were still quite visible. Uh, Nathan, take either or both of those topics and tell us what a viewer in 2014 needs to know to understand this movie made in 1991. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the Giuliani connection, but that's partly because I've never been in New York City myself, so I I, I really only know it through television and movies. Uh, but this is a New York City where uh, you're in a sort of late Reagan, post-Reagan moment where you know mental illness is still somewhat contained i guess institutionally because there is a mental hospital involved uh but you also have like michael said i mean just packs of mentally ill people uh living on the street and i mean it's it's part of the landscape of the movie uh it's where jack lucas goes i mean basically to kill himself uh it's also i mean and i'm almost certain there's no historical precedent for this but michael or david if you know of uh historical reference that can you know make this as awesome as the movie presents it as far as i know there were no bands of mentally ill vigilantes roaming the streets of new york city it seems like there's something there should have been yeah uh but (laughs) yeah in a perfect world there would have been yeah yeah batman because because seriously (laughs) yeah but batman didn't use a bow and arrow no that's true yeah true enough true enough so Uh, you know, Perry, uh, who was a college teacher, uh, you know, because of this traumatic moment that Michael just narrated, uh, loses touch. And I mean, he lives on the streets. He's taken in by, uh, a landlord of an apartment building and he lives in, I believe a basement space. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, he, he basically spends his nights, uh, out among the poor of New York city. Uh, he gathers around him, like I said, this band of vigilantes. Uh, and what's interesting is a, a couple things. I mean, one is that these are the people who are Jack's deliverance when, you know, a a gang of criminals, uh, and I'm, I'm, criminals is probably a little bit too generous. I mean, basically a gang of young men with nothing better to do decide that they're going to find a homeless person and uh, and it's, you know, uh, Perry and his 
band of vigilantes who save him. But then on the other hand, on the other end of the movie, uh, when Jack Lucas is starting to ascend back into the world of the entertainment industry, one of the ideas that gets pitched to him is, let's make a show about zany homeless people <laughs> who enjoy being homeless. And on one hand, utterly tone deaf, but then you realize that that's exactly where Jack has been living for most of the movie. So it's 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 one of those bizarre things. Now, on the other end, uh, the ecology of this movie is just fascinating because, like Michael said, you've got a Howard Stern-style shock jock uh, who is, you know, this celebrity making all sorts of money, uh, you know, young girlfriends, the whole shtick, uh, who, ha- who has a an opportunity to step even further light by starring in a sitcom, which again is a genre that, you know, has to some extent declined in its, you know, cultural dominance. Uh, but then he, he fall from grace because he is the indirect cause of this mass murder. And the form of his fall from grace is he ends up moving in with his girlfriend who runs a video store. So, I mean, it's just all sorts of sort of late 80s, early 90s pop culture media ecology things going on in this movie. <laughs> and Unless you all... live in McPherson, Kansas. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they are things that, you know, really you don't think of as defining the cultural moment of 1979. And in 2009, it's almost unintelligible. But in 1989, it makes a good deal of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh David, I mean, what other bits, I mean, would you put in there as far as the period piece? Uh, the fact that Jeff Bridges looks so much like Val Kilmer, it, <laughs> that, yeah, that, that kind of got to me. Um, the video store thing, absolutely. Uh, oh, what else, what else was I, th- there were so many moments where I was like, ah, oh, junior high nostalgia. Uh-huh. Um. Oh man, the <laughs> the hilarious. I it, it has always been hilarious to me. Um. Uh. D- depiction, just awkward, awkward depiction of awkward, awkward white kids as thugs. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's a that's a true to life thing. That that rich white kids. Uh, torturing homeless people like that that happens that that is not that is not something Gilliam made up Gilliam didn't write the movie but it, well, it's I'm not, not talking about that I'm talking about the performances of the actors oh I see what you're saying okay <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so so many now granted lots of them were on MacGyver <laughs> All right you know the 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 young white thug of of the late 80s and early 90s was yeah that that's that's also kind of a period piece yeah and their jeep yeah, yeah well <laughs> the jerkiest of all vehicles <laughs> at least until the hummer yeah which that even kind of struck me as something of a medieval move as well because you know Terry, Terry Gilliam and and we'll 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 get there eventually he's he's he does not have a romantic idealized view of the middle ages. No. Far far from it. And the idea of, you know, you know, the 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 the, the local swains of the gentry wading into the pe- uh, you know, to the peasantry for a little, you know, um venting mayhem um is that's that's probably a little more authentically medieval than any kind of grail legend. Well, while we're talking about Gilliam, I think everybody's going to agree that whether you love it or hate it, nobody shoots a movie quite like him. Um, other than Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which does not look like the Fisher King, the only the only <laughs> Gilliam movies I know are this one and uh, his the movie that came right after it in his catalog, uh, Twelve Monkeys. Both of them have a very distinctive visual style. David, what can you tell us about the way Gilliam makes movies and what they look like when he does? Okay. Uh, Gilliam movies I've seen. Um, obviously, I've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Um, I saw, let's see, after that, he made Jabberwocky, saw that. After that, he made Time Bandits, saw that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, did not see Baron Munchausen. Um, now I've seen Fisher King and I saw 12 Monkeys. And then I saw that terrible Brothers Grimm movie. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about the Brothers Grimm movie. And I remember, I don't remember very much about Time Bandits, to be frank. Um, Gilliam is... I, I, I love that movie in ways that I'm ashamed to love a movie. <laughs> I really okay. do. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'll, I'll pitch that one to you once, I, <laughs> once I've said some things. He does have a very distinctive style, and one of the things that is distinctive is Gilliam's... Gilliam loves the grotesque and the ornate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good description. Um, if, if, there's ever, if there's ever been you know, a director who has the same kind of sensibilities as the guys who carved gargoyles onto Gothic cathedrals. It's Terry Gilliam. Um, the, uh, grotesque faces, um, bizarre, uh, bizarre imagery, uh, madness is something that, that, that crops mm-hmm. up a lot. Um, a very kind of darkly humorous, I, um, frankly, I, 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 I watched Jabberwocky cause it was the movie Terry Gilliam made after he made Holy Grail. And it also had some Monty Python alumni in it, um, including Michael Palin, but that movie hates human beings so much. <laughs> um, I will, I, I will never watch it again. Um, well, I have to say, after we watched this, not late at night, but you know, it was it was dark. And afterwards, my wife, who I should say, by the time this airs, will be a doctor. Yeah, Doctor Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Doctor Victoria Reynolds Farmer uh, turned to me and said, uh, "We have to go watch something happy now because I'm not going to be able to sleep." Like it's it's profoundly like he he's clearly trying to unsettle you. Yes, mm-hmm. it's not scary, but it's unsettling. Yes. Um. It's not. It's not as misanthropic as um, as Jabberwocky, but there is still there. There's there's a there's a there's a misanthropic eye in the film, and it's Jack. It's Jack's eye, especially at the beginning. Um, if there's if there's anyone who sees the world the way Gilliam's vision and Jabberwocky, like Gilliam's vision and Jabberwocky, it's it's the Jack character. Um. I'm just happy that there's someone else in the movie who doesn't see things the way, the way Jack does, even if he's crazy, um, <laughs> you know, because fr- fr- frankly, I, I, I see that, that, that total misanthropy that, well, that's really manifest by the fisheye lens in shot in the video store. Yeah. He loves fisheye space. lens, doesn't he? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. The fisheye of grotesque faces. <laughs> it's Kathy yeah. Kathy Najimi who plays Peggy Hill on uh on King of the Hill. Yeah. <laughs> it's the um, obnoxious video store customer. Yeah. That's that's really that's that's funny. But any anyway, that 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 particular eye reminded me very much of of the whole tone of Jabberwocky that you just hate people looking through that eye. Um do you see any time uh, time bandits in here, Nathan? Oh yeah, I mean, first of all, time bandits and Fisher King uh, do a lot of play with altitude. Uh, I mean, there are sort of soaring shots uh, of skyscrapers in the Fisher King, of bottomless pits and time bandits, uh, contrasted with sort of almost claustrophobic street level scenes in Fisher King, and then time bandit height scenes in time bandits. Uh, listeners go watch it and you'll understand what that means. Um, <laughs> but, uh, what, what I really dig about both is that, uh, beyond the visual, I mean, there's also just this, and, and, and it's funny. I mean, you, you got, you guys find it terrifying. I mean, I find it, uh, amusing, which probably says something about me, but, uh, in time, Nothing bandits, our, listener I mean, didn't already, our listeners didn't already know. <laughs> true enough. True enough. I, I, I forget what your line was early in our show, Michael, that I'm the uh, the oldest of the three and also the youngest. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is this sense that 
I, I, I guess there's an overwhelming atmosphere of absurdity in a Terry Gilliam film. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I mean, the salvation that eventually comes to Perry and Jack ends with a sing along in a mental hospital. Right. Uh, there, there is something. Uh, I, I don't even know what adjective to put on that, other than to adjectivalize Terry Gilliam in the same way that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the same way that at the end of Time Bandits, uh, you know, the salvation for the main character is that he's returned to his world, but the devil blows up his worthless parents. And I mean, it, 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 that's where the movie ends. I mean, it, and then, you know, a nonsensical uh, George Harrison sing along. And uh, <laughs> I mean, you you just have to walk away from the film and say, that's what I get. And that's kind of a, that's kind of what I think of as the Gilliam vibe. Well, to, to me, the, the kind of quintessential Gilliam moment of this movie is the train station scene. Where, where, oh, gosh, where Perry yeah. takes Jack, he's in love with uh, this Lydia, played by Amanda Plummer, and he, he takes Jack to, to see her at the train station where she comes every day. And when, when she walks through, everybody, all, all of a sudden there's this incredibly choreographed waltz between everybody in the train station. And it's, I mean, it's, it's just wonderfully shot. Oh, G- yeah. Gilliam seems to me to be an iconic filmmaker in the sense that, that what he mostly does is present you with these very indelible images. It's been a while since I saw 12 Monkeys. I seem to recall a, a lion walking around a deserted frozen city. Yeah, you, you know, and I, hell, I don't know what that means, but uh, <laughs> the the image sticks with you, right? And I mean that that moment in the train, the waltz in the train station is juxtaposed with the speech by the homeless veteran, right? Uh, Tom I mean, Waits, oh, by the way, God, is that Tom Waits? That is Tom Waits. Oh my goodness! Oh, I see. I didn't know that. Um, I mean, so again, I mean, it, it's this wonderful, um, I, I I would say surreal glorious moment juxtaposed with this utterly cynical speech delivered by Tom Waits. I just learned (laughs) the other thing Gilliam loves Dutch angles. Oh man, does he love Dutch angles and he does something with Dutch angles. I've never seen anybody else do, which he does a Dutch angle and a long shot at the same time. So (laughs) normally when you have a Dutch angle, you get the one shot for about two seconds. He will park it on a Dutch angle for 20, 25 seconds. The only place I've seen more Dutch angles is battlefield era. Yeah, well, high praise. <laughs> Sorry, Terry Gilliam. <laughs> we but, do I mean, love you. <laughs> he's doing something interesting. Like, like I, th- I, th- I really think it gets back to that unsettling thing. I mean, a Dutch angle usually people use it, and if you don't know, if, if our listeners don't know what it means, a Dutch angle is when the the camera turns uh, forty five degrees or so. It, it, it's generally it's a hacky move in old movies to demonstrate that somebody's upset about something. <gasps> oh mm-hmm. my god you know and it'll go to a dutch angle but but gilliam will just turn the camera 45 degrees and leave it there for an entire scene yeah mm-hmm. yeah if, if you think about it in comic books the diagonal frame yeah and well, the there's something kind of comic booky about the fisher king isn't there oh yeah yeah mm-hmm. and certainly about 12 monkeys i don't know about the other ones mm. well nathan in our pre-show prep you made a connection between the fisher king and dante uh, our longtime listeners won't be surprised by that because you connect everything to Dante. But in what ways does the plot line of this film function as a kind of purgatory for Jack Lucas? All right. So, listeners, this is the point where really you've got to pause and go watch the movie because I'm going to spoil the rest of it at this point. Uh, when Jack Lucas uh, basically enters into video store world, it's because his own arrogance and his own hatred of humanity have driven him there. Uh, the fallout of his misanthropy uh have finally driven him beyond where even the jaded public will accept it and he is in this you know like i said i mean porn heavy video store purgatory the way that he is educated out of that is by a series of narratives uh that basically train him to desire differently mm. uh and part of that is his relationship with Anne, his girlfriend who owns the video store uh, she is not young. Uh, she is not glamorous. Uh, but boy, does she ever love him. And she lets him know that. And she is, at the same time, his mother and his lover. She is trying to get him saved uh, in a strange sort of way because whenever she opens her mouth, some sort of weird quasi theological 
mumbo jumbo comes out. But the devil making man and God making yeah, woman. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, what? <laughs> so on one hand, you've got that. I mean, you've got this most unlikely Beatrice figure uh, who is sort of the anti-Beatrice, but who is nonetheless leading Jack to his salvation. On the other hand, like David has already said, uh, you get Jack stepping into the role simultaneously of Percival and the Fisher King. Uh, he is one who is wounded, uh, but who also seeks to help someone else who is wounded. I think that dialectic between those two realities uh, is something that plays out. Uh, it's it's not dissimilar, I think, to the strong emphasis throughout Dante's Purgatory on prayers for the dead and prayers from the dead. It's one mm-hmm. of those things where people are lifting each other up uh, by by virtue of divine grace. Uh, and then finally, I mean the the scene where the scene where Jack has to break into the house uh, to steal the Grail, uh, and it's one of those things where it never gets explained why he has to do that, and that's one of the strong points of the film. But he does. He he dresses up like Perry, which is also significant. Uh, mm-hmm. He uses a grappling hook to break into this New York City eccentric man's castle-shaped house. Uh, which, which, by the way, I mean, again, thinking of Terry Gilliam, the absurd climbing scene is also something that's a strong feature of Time Bandits. But um, <laughs> <laughs> he breaks into this place, and as he is stealing this man's Holy Grail, which the sense in which it is a Holy Grail, you really got to watch the film to get that part too. But as he steals it, he realizes that the owner of the house has himself drunk himself into a medical emergency. And by escaping, not by the quiet means that he got in, but by setting off the man's alarm and drawing emergency workers to the house, he at the same time saves Jack, or not saves Jack, saves Perry, who has said that he needs the grail. He saves the old man by drawing an ambulance to his house, presumably, and saves his own soul by taking this risk of you know being caught and arrested and so on and so forth. So it's one of those things where so many things in this plot line are pointing towards the re-education of Jack's soul. He has to care about someone other than himself, and ultimately he has to learn to care about himself rather than his image, and ultimately he has to care about presenting an image to people who are important rather than the rapacious listening public, and ultimately he has to care about the public enough not to be the Jack Lucas that he used to be, in order for all these things to happen. So like Dante, it is this multi-layer story of salvation. Uh, you're right, Michael, I bring Dante into everything, but there, there's some Dante in here. Come on. You're going to write this paper, there. Nathan, if it hasn't already been written. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well and, I, already, I already did the uh, Christopher Marlowe and uh, Little Shop of Horrors paper, so maybe this will be my next one. Well, uh, to, I mean, I, I, I don't think this is inappropriate. I mean, first... You know, we've got we've we've got a very distinct scene in which, you know, towards the beginning of the movie, in which Jack Lucas is kind of you know, hunkered down next to this statue of a knight. Oh, how interesting! Um, saying to himself, "Do you have, do you ever feel like you're suffering for your sins?" Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh. Oh, is that what this is about, Terry? The the, the symbolism in this movie is so heavy-handed that uh, (laughs) I I think what I said to Victoria was Matt Weiner, the creator of... Matt Weiner, excuse me. We always call him Matt Weiner because he's such a wiener. Matt Weiner, (laughs) the creator of Mad Men, would watch this movie and say, hey, dial it back. Trust your audience a little more, man. (laughs) And that's a show that opened with uh, the main character reading Dante on a beach. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the other one, which is a little more, (laughs) yes, yes. Well, the other one, which I think is a little more subtle is when Jack is kneeling next to Perry's bed and he's saying, if I do this, it's not to be forgiven. It's essentially, it's not for redemption. It's not because I owe you. I'm just going to do it for you. He's Mm -hmm. lost his self-consciousness. And it's. Yeah, and 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 that's you know I I think you're right, Nathan. That's showing he his his desires, his loves have been reoriented, and when he does that thing for that reason, it's showing okay, his his moral compass is pointing in the right direction now. Mm. 
you know, yep. not in direction of self or only in the direction of other because of some kind of obligation. And I have to admit, I mean, in this in this admittedly ham-fisted movie, I mean, that's a genuinely moving moment. Yes. Oh, I think it's full of moving moments. I I, did, I didn't mean it. Its unsubtlety is is not exactly a a fault. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. And, le- and let's be fair, the Grail the Grail romances were pretty much allegorical from the from the get go. I mean, the, the, there was no pretending in the Middle Ages that the story might just be for fun. Right. Right. You know. Well, like like I said, I I think of Gilliam as a iconic filmmaker and i mean icons aren't subtle either no mm-hmm. you know it, it it needs to be blatant that's that's what he's that is that's what he's up to and and i mean to me a little bit of that goes a long way i this isn't a movie that i f- see myself watching every six months but mm-hmm. i i think it's a good a good experience is is he is he writing in large characters for the heart of seeing <laughs> he certainly believes himself to be mm-hmm. i'm not sure anybody is uh, hard of seeing bad enough to not, uh, not, not be able to see some of this imagery. Like, like Nathan said, the, the forgive me is pretty, pretty heavy. Yeah. Yeah. As well as the, the frequent use of the song, uh, I got the power. Oh gosh. Yeah. Let's talk about, talk about marking it as a 91 period piece. Um, the only thing I would correct about you is I'm, I'm not sure, uh, Anne is supposed to be Beatrice because she kind of falls away the way Virgil does. Like she, she gets him started on this, but it's Perry who, who takes him into the highest realm. So I, I would say Perry is his Beatrice. Oh, then let, then let Perry be Bonaventure. Cause I mean, he comes back to Anne. All right. <laughs> well, you get your reason back. <laughs> I mean, you're the Dante expert. <laughs> oh, I'm not that, but I compared I'm, to I, me, I, I, I just want to stick up for Anne. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, while we're talking about that, at some point we do need to talk about the performances in this movie. Um, mm. Williams was nominated for a Best Os- Actor Oscar. He didn't win. Um, Mercedes Rule, who played Anne, did win the Best Supporting Actress, and she won a whole bunch of other awards. Jeff Bridges was nominated for a Golden Globe. I think Amanda Plummer was nominated for a few smaller awards. Uh, uh, David, do you think they deserve these nominations? Uh, how would you characterize the main performances here? I don't know. This is this is really, 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 really tough for me. Um, first, because I, I I really, really like Jeff Bridges. I mean, Jeff Bridges could just sort of like walk on screen and like read a phone book, uh-huh. and I didn't, and I'd enjoy it. <laughs> so, so you're saying I, you liked the Big Lebowski? Yes, I have. I have no critical distance. <laughs> you know <laughs> i have no critical distance um but he really case... he really holds the movie together yeah he does he does really uh... <laughs> he, his vulnerability bit right mm-hmm. his his that moment really hit home and now i am no longer the big boned big voiced man um Maybe he makes the same face <laughs> in every one of those moments, but every time it gets me right I, for for whatever reason that 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 performance works for me. So I don't have any critical distance there. Uh, Robin Williams, I think, is really strong. He's he's funny, but he's not he's not always funny when he's you know when he's trying to be when he's working at being affecting. He 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 does that, mm-hmm. but. But I've always thought he was a good actor. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone else, I don't know. I don't know. But then I don't know what the field looked like in 1991 in terms of who to give awards to. Okay, here we go. Um, so uh, Hopkins beat Robin Williams for Best Actor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Best Supporting Actress, Mercedes Rule won against Diane Ladd for Rambling Rose, Juliette Lewis for Cape Fear, Kate Nelligan for The Prince of Tides, and Jessica Tandy for Fried Green Tomatoes. Of those, I have seen Cape Fear. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That was a big year. Yeah. 
And then Jodie Foster won Best Actress for Silence of the Lambs. She wouldn't have been up against Mercedes Rule because Mercedes Rule is a supporting actress. So. Well, that was also Thelma and Louise. It was also Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which was probably not nominated for any of those things. I, think... <laughs> I love that's your go-to. <laughs> how, many, how many medieval wow. movies do you think get made every year, David? Yeah. But also also Last Boy Scout, right? Um, that Wow. Wow. That was... Wow. Okay. It's the year right. of the villain, that's for sure, between Silence of the Lambs and Cape Fear, uh, both being nominated for Best Actor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Anyway. So that that's what she was up against. I, I, I don't know if that if that means anything to you. It means almost nothing to me because the only thing I've seen that Mercedes Rule was against was Juliette Lewis and Cape Fear, and I didn't like Juliette Lewis and Cape Fear. So, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a pretty good field, I gather, but... Um, I, I I couldn't say because I haven't I haven't read most of or seen most of the the movies that Rule was up against. Mm. Mm. It's funny she hasn't done much since then. I mean she she's done some things and I think the the thing I knew her from was she plays Frasier's unpleasant boss on Frasier oh, in, okay. in like five episodes. Other than that, uh, I'm not sure I've ever seen her in anything other than this. You, you, uh, this did not like launch her into the superstar spectrum the way you might expect a uh, Oscar winner to be launched. Right. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a kind of, uh, I, I, I hope this doesn't come across the right way. Uh, maybe this is kind of a terrible question, but can you tell the difference between Robin Williams, Perry character and many of his others? Oh goodness. That's a good question. Because to a large degree, the way he plays Perry is the way Robin Williams does the, now I'm being silly, now I'm being crazy, now I'm being tender and funny, now I'm saying slyly witty things, now, you know? It's a little toned down, which is a crazy thing to say about a portrayal of a, uh insane homeless person. <laughs> but I, I, would say, I would say it is actually a step down. In terms yeah. of Robin Williams' zaniness, yeah. uh, okay. I, I think really what we're dealing with here is it's the perfect role for him to play because it, it it requires what he does very well, which is very big and very um, small at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. And and he's the perfect actor. It, it's very difficult to imagine anybody but him playing the Perry role, don't you? Think? Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Bridges is is really well cast for his role as well, but you can imagine other people. Play. You could imagine Nick Nolte or somebody else who was big in 1991 playing Jack Lucas. Okay, but yeah, like yeah. like the the Williams role is just perfectly cast, and I I think I think it's one of his very best performances, precisely because you, you there's both sides of that, but mm-hmm. you don't get whiplash. It's it's like he's hiding the the sad small part inside the huge zany part. Mm-hmm. So basically, the impression that I had with Robin Williams just normally. Yeah, probably. Okay. I mean, it'll be interesting as we watch the other two movies we're watching for this series and and see how much his portrayal changes. I think what we're going to do as we go through them is we're going to see a decreasing level of zaniness. Mm-hmm. But that'll be that'll be a question. although we're stepping back in time for the next one. Yeah, that's true. That's we're not going in chronological order. Ooh, what are we talking about? Our listeners will have to wait and find out. <laughs> Nathan, do you have any uh, anything to add about the performances? Well, I, I agree with David. I mean, that the sort of... and I, I don't even know what to call this character type, so I'm going to try to coin a phrase, the the magical hairy white guy uh, <laughs> that Robert <laughs> tends to play. I mean, where you're right. I mean, one moment he is bouncing off the wall, and the next moment he's dispensing wisdom to the mostly clueless, uh, you know, central white guy. Uh, mm-hmm. That's definitely the character here. I mean, and, you know, uh, it's it's the same character that we're going to see in the other movies that we talk about in this trilogy. Um, but I think it's interesting that, you know, you do have like I said, I mean, Mercedes rule, I, 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 I have seen those other movies and I don't remember any of those roles that you just mentioned. So, I mean, I think there's something to say there. I mean, even before I started rewatching this movie for this episode, her performance in Fisher King is one that 
I knew that I was going to talk about before I reviewed the movie. She's right? she's quite good. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. she she like Williams is is playing a rather broad part. She's she's kind of a stereotype. She's this angry. Uh, I assume she's Italian American in the movie. Maybe she's yeah, maybe yeah. she's Latina. I don't know. But she's this uh-huh. angry ethnic woman and, and nevertheless hiding this real core of humanity inside the part where you you really feel for her because she's she's stuck loving this deadbeat this yeah. th- who's mm-hmm. who's cruel yes mm-hmm. so i mean I, I i think i mean first of all i mean i i, I love jeff bridges in this movie i mean I, it's one of those things i uh you know, I mean, this and, you know, Big Lebowski. I mean, those are, for my money, the defining Jeff Bridges roles. Um, what about Tron, Nathan? <laughs> 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 yeah, not so much. I, I mean, since that was basically, you know, let's just do Lebowski again. <laughs> yeah, I, I have but, no critical difference for the distance from Tron either, so. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, I, I definitely think that, you know, Mercedes Rule is the uh come out of nowhere performance in here i think robin williams is playing a a character that he has played before when he does this movie and he will again uh and you know like i said i think this is one of jeff bridge's defining roles so i mean I, I, as far as the acting goes i mean i think that you've got some really strong characters here and then because it is a terry gilliam film a lot of the other characters as long as they are big 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 uh which they are uh, they also work in this context. So, you know, uh, you get the, um, the cabaret singing homeless person as IMDB identifies him. Uh, <laughs> there's no nuance required for that. He has to be big every time he's on the screen. He is, uh, you get Tom Waits with that wonderful speech. He delivers it nicely. So I think that, you know, as far as the execution of this film, I mean, it does it well enough to do what Terry Gilliam's after. I would mm-hmm. say Amanda Plummer is the weak link. Yeah, yeah. Her her performance doesn't have the nuance that the other big performances have. She plays a klutz, and I, I don't know. I she's I believe she's British, and she's putting on an American accent, and it's a very grating American accent to me. But I've mm-hmm. also never liked Amanda Plummer, even in Pulp Fiction. I, can, can I say that I really, really didn't like that whole subplot? can say whatever you want david this yeah, is okay. your show man <laughs> okay i i feel like it's a, it, it's it's like i'm saying yes i didn't like you know like the second main thing that the movie is interested in but you you didn't you didn't think that the scene where williams is walking her home and she says here's what here's what's going to happen you're going to sleep with me and never call me again and and she goes to this long speech. It's like twelve times as long as I just made it. And, yeah. and then and then he keeps trying to object. And and then he he finally comes out and says, "I'm I'm not going to do that." And I don't drink coffee or whatever else he says. I, I posted yeah. it when he died to the blog. You, oh yeah yeah yeah. But you, I mean, I I would say before David jumps in that William saves that scene yeah. from Plummer. Oh no, I wouldn't say she's right. she's great in it. But I, you, he's he's criticizing the whole plot. And I, I would oh, say that taken, that, that plot is worth it for that scene, which which to me is the most moving thing in the whole movie. The, this vision of this man trying to love again. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to deny that, but it, 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 it felt. And maybe, maybe what I'm doing, maybe what I'm feeling is the weakness on, on, on her side, but I don't believe it. All right. No matter how well Robin, Robin Williams delivers that, that speech I really, really, really don't believe this woman falling for the homeless guy on the first date. You know, he's he's a tiny little hairy man. Oh, come on. My <laughs> wife says he's handsome. Oh, OK. Well, I, maybe I'm just, I'm just not, you know, ass- assessing him rightly. To, but... to be fair, I don't know that she knows he's homeless. OK. All right. Maybe maybe I'm just carrying too much of that carrying too much of that in with me, but I I I, I don't know it, it it all it feels too soon to me if that makes sense. I feel like that's something that should develop more. And mm, okay, and it's like 
it's like it's 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 too fast, which the movie feels it too, which is why it has to interrupt it. it you're right that that plot is kind of undercooked. It it can't, you know, the movie, you know, if if that would have been enough, the movie could have ended there, but it but the movie knows the the movie's not about, about him and her, it's about Jack and Perry. Yeah. Right. And I, I, I don't know, for whatever reason, I felt that uh, to some degree it was a distraction from what I felt the movie was about. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's, but the, the, the movie's trying, it, it, it has two protagonists, it has two hero arcs, it has two redemption stories. It has too how, much. How do you make that work? <laughs> There's so much doubling going on here. Um, I guess something had to give, and that that to me feels like the thing that gives. And it is kind of the most conventional plot. Mm-hmm. I mean, his his being we keep calling him homeless. He's actually not homeless. He lives in a basement free free of charge. But okay, he right. presents as homeless. <laughs> um, right, and he also leads a band of homeless mentally ill vigilantes. I right. just had to say that one more time. <laughs> right, <laughs> it's a knight errant. Um. Uh, uh, the homelessness not a, notwithstanding it, it is a conventional romantic comedy plot right down to her being clumsy right mm-hmm. but again that scene is so moving and so well done at least on his part and in terms of how it's shot and how it's written i i i'm glad that plot is in the movie if only for that scene plus the scene at the chinese restaurant is excellent too where they're mm-hmm. both where they're both just spilling mountains of food all over themselves <laughs> <laughs> which uh that was actually a scene that i did that i heard but did not get to see oh i'm not you know, sure I, it would make you like her performance any better but it's a it's a sweet scene i was like okay something's funny happening apparently apparently they think something really really funny is happening here but what i see is a series of pixelated still images they, they are they are dropping food all over themselves while jack and Anne. uh look on like half amused half horrified the way i guess you probably would if you were in that situation yeah keep keep in mind that that i will never i i I can i can almost not bring myself to watch a scene in which i feel awkward and embarrassed for the characters in it so i i I guess you kind of have to factor that into into that whole thing i'm just I'm, I'm just feeling like okay when is this gonna go wrong when is she going to find out this is you know a whole put-up job when is the poop gonna hit the fan you know that whole time i'm watching any any of their interactions i'm waiting for that and it didn't happen right but i'm waiting for it the whole time and so that's 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 affecting the way i perceive all of it Fair anyway enough. okay well, let's I'm end. sorry. No, no, you don't need to apologize, David. <laughs> Forgive me. After what I said about Lovecraft last week, after my tepid disdain, as according <laughs> to one of our one of our listeners, uh, let's let's end uh, this episode as we usually end these single text episodes. Uh, let's go around the horn and say other things we found interesting in the movie. I'm sure we we still have plenty we could talk about. Uh, Gilmore, let's start with you. All right. Um... Well, I mean, it's kind of something that I've already tipped my hat to. Um, but one of the things that I found most fascinating about this is the invisibility of the poor in this movie. And it's one of the things that didn't really fit into any of the sort of uh, film critical questions that we were engaged in. But the fact of the matter is that when Jack goes out to kill himself, you get the sense that he's trying to go out into a place that is abandoned so he can be alone when he dies. Uh, But it turns out that that area of town is just dense with people, but people that he never sees before. And as the movie rolls on, you come to realize that whether it's in Central Park or whether it's in the slums or whether it is really in any part of this movie, there's a sense in which people from Jack's old walk of life simply can't see poor people. Uh, And, of course, the Tom Waits speech is sort of the culmination of that, the upshot of the speech, and I won't ruin it by trying to perform it here, uh, but he says that his role in the universe is to take people's change in his cup so that they don't have to look at him. And what that serves for people is a reminder that there is 
a world that they don't want to be a part of, so they'd better not step out of line or they'll become part of it. And what is just incredibly sad about that is that his role in the economy of this universe is precisely not to be a human, but to be, uh, I believe in his, in his words, a moral traffic light. Mm -hmm. And then of course, I mean, you get the scene at the very end where Jack Lucas is once again, rising to prominence and what the, what the company wants him to do is a sitcom, uh, based on these people that, in the scene just before he had pretended not to see, even though this was one of the people he had actually become friends with over the course of the film. Now that he is Jack Lucas media personality again, he can't see homeless people again. So it's one of those things that uh, it runs all the way through the film. And if you watch the film with your eye on that motif, uh, it's a really strong critique of sort of, the consciousness of other people when they are not part of the world in the sort of existentialist sense that you inhabit. So uh, watch the movie once for all of the groovy medieval stuff, then watch it again so that you can see how people don't see the poor. David, what do you got? One of the things that we haven't mentioned so far, and I hope I'm not stealing your thunder, Michael, is the Red Knight. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, whenever, whenever Perry seems to get close to the achievement of a goal, um, whenever, you know, when he, when he's, he's, he's given his great speech to the girl, other, other critical moments in the film, he has a vision of a, a knight, uh, garbed in red, and it's, it's incredibly ornate, baroque, uh, just it, it's 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 fantastic. The 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 helmet, the just curly cues. I mean, I don't have all the words. I feel like I need to have like Lovecraft prose in order to describe <laughs> the way the Red Knight looks. And he also the, spews flames. The yes, the flames and all the rest of it. And it's it's such a it's it's such an arresting image that you almost don't even care what it means. It has to mean, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and eventually you figure out uh, what in the film, the redness of the night and the flame that he breathes signifies. Right? It ain't Even, good. It ain't good, right? Eventually you, 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 you learn what it means. But um, one it's an it's it's just amazingly shot. Every scene that has the red knight in it is amazing. It's like your worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, except you have your pants on. Um, <laughs> uh, it's 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 incredibly nightmarish. It's also a beautiful image um, for for a character who never speaks, who never has lines, and is essentially moving scenery. Um, there there's a lot of character. I felt in the red knight also um there's a red knight in the percival story and and percival has to conquer him in order to uh in order to progress and become a knight to begin with uh so i i I appreciated that that callback um you know, take, first taking the image of the Red Knight and then putting it to this new use in the story, and then doing it, doing it so well. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I was really impressed by that. Well, uh, what I noticed, especially thinking about this in conjunction with Twelve Monkeys, is how much Terry Gilliam hates bureaucracies and institutions. Any time you go into a controlled world in a Terry Gilliam movie, it is going to be Kafka-esque. And and, I mean, the 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 great example in this is the mental institution, which is Mm -hmm. which is a place of profound suffering and pain and ugliness. And and but but it's all you know perfectly set out. The beds are equal distance from each other. It's it's perfectly set up, and yet there's a man bleeding from the side of his head for no particular reason. 
Right. And what fixes the mental institution is the song and dance number at the end. It's Robin Williams coming back to life and having everybody sing and get out of their beds and, and basically destroy the the cleanliness of the place. This is what Terry Gilliam likes. If, if, if choosing between a boardroom and a uh, underground gathering of homeless people, he's going to choose the underground gathering of homeless people because, because that precision is somehow soul-destroying for Terry Gilliam. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I have anything beyond that. Hey, that's good. Well, thanks for listening to our episode on The Fisher King. If you feel like we've left something out or given poor Amanda Plummer short shift, please uh, <laughs> send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or comment on our blog, which is christianhumanist.org. Nathan, what are we doing next week? Well, next week we're going to step back in time, like I said earlier, and we're going to talk about a movie that English teachers love to hate, or love to love, and I'm sure we're going to get some emails back on this puppy dog. We're doing Dead Poets Society. Well, that sounds great. Tune in next week to hear that, to hear, I'm sure, at least one of us complain about that movie, and at least one of us try to defend it. <laughs> I haven't seen it in so long that I'm not sure which side I'm going to be on. Yeah, I'm planning to rewatch it this afternoon so I can write up some show notes, so I'm looking forward to that. In the meantime, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. For Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be strong. So the sad-